If you have your Bible, we're going to be looking at John chapter 8 this morning. I will not be preaching it, but I am going to read it to you. At the conclusion of the reading of the scripture, I'll say this is the word of the Lord, and if you so choose, you can say praise be to Christ. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go. From now on, sin no more. This is indeed the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Not just me hearing that. Sometimes I hear voices, and it's good to hear. Well, good morning, Covenant Presbyterian Church. My name is Will Downey. I am the director of student ministries here at the barn and also occasional preacher. Um, I'm going to pop a cough drop now. Uh, excuse if my voice gets hoarse. Uh, last night, Celebration Hall did not look like this. It was a giant Nerf War arena, uh, and I was yelling quite a lot. Uh, joyously, all right, not angry yelling, but uh, my, voice, my voice is a little hoarse. <clears throat> um, it is so good to be worshiping with you this morning, though. Um, I get the joy of seeing many of you midweek, whether you're folding bulletins or volunteering with the youth ministry or doing Bible studies or the countless other things that we do throughout the middle of the week to keep our church body staying healthy. Uh, but it's great to have all of you together on Sundays. For those of you who do see me outside normal church services, uh, you'll notice that probably nine out of ten times I'm going to be wearing a green Liberty University hoodie. Uh, and that's for two reasons. First off, because hoodies are the most wonderful apparel in God's good creation. Uh, but it's also because I'm quite fond of the place that I did my undergraduate studies. If you don't know of it, Liberty University is the largest Christian university in the country. And, at least what they told us, it's the most exciting place on the planet. <laughs> For all the good that my time at Liberty has done in my life, I do acknowledge that it can be a pretty divisive school. Uh, after all, the two topics that you don't talk about are religion and politics. And Liberty's founder, a pastor and political activist, was active in both. And the school took a pretty hard stance on both. 
It was unashamedly evangelical Christian and unabashedly politically conservative. So, it shocked me one Sunday morning during my college years when a very left-leaning man from the church that I was attending came into church sporting. Uh, Liam, I don't have control of the slides now, so you're going to have to... Um, sporting a tattoo with Liberty's mascot on his right arm and on his left arm a coexist tattoo, the one up there with all the different religions on it. Being a naturally curious person, I asked him, well, what led you to get this particular combination of tattoos? And his answer has stuck with me. He told me, well, for all that I disagree about liberty, I do think it does a good job teaching God's truth from his word. But it often misses the mark in showing the love of Jesus. So I got this coexist tattoo because I think it balances out um, exemplifying the compassion and the respect for others that Christians should be known for. And that response made an impact on me. But as I've thought about it over the years, I've wondered, is that a pipe dream? I'm sure we've all seen parts of the church that are really big on God's truth and justice. I'm going to point to you every time we need to switch. Um, parts of the church that come off as more hateful and um, bigotrous than ambassadors for Christ. You know, it's God's way or burn in hell, pagan. All right. But on the other hand, and I might add maybe more common in this part of the country, you can put the next one up, uh, we have parts of the church that are so concerned about being loving and compassion and tolerant that we ignore clear teaching from Scripture that would swim against the current of our culture. It's easy to put all the chips in on compassion or on truth, love or justice, but is it possible to hold on to both? Well, it's difficult to hold the love of God and the justice of God in unison, but I believe it is possible. And Jesus, the perfect human, and our example showed us how. Our message this morning is going to be from John chapter 8, verses 2 to 11, as Matt read this morning. And as you turn to John chapter 8, you'll likely see some troubling brackets around this morning's text. So to start off, I want to give a quick word on to why I'm preaching from this particular passage. After that, we're going to look at Jesus' example and our calling. Jesus' example and our calling. Uh, and you can blank that, Liam. Jesus has perfectly exemplified the love and the justice of God. And we are called to reflect his perfect love and his perfect justice in our culture today. But first, the brackets. In even the most basic Bibles, you'll see brackets around John 7, 53 to 8, 11. And a footnote saying something along the lines of the earliest manuscripts do not include this section. And you may wonder, well, why is that a big deal? Well, it all comes down to what Christians mean when they claim that the Bible is the inspired word of God. The, uh, the buzzword or buzz phrase that theologians use is a verbal plenary inspiration. Verbal plenary inspiration. Which means that every word of scripture is from God. 
When Moses penned Genesis, or John wrote his gospel, or Paul wrote a letter to the Corinthians, God inspired the process to the extent that the words that the human authors bore, uh, that the human authors wrote, bore as much weight and authority as if God himself had etched them into stone. As such, they are without error, and they are fully authoritative on what we should believe and how we should live. See 2 Timothy 3, 16 to 17. But we don't have the original manuscripts of the biblical books today. What we do have are copies, a lot of copies. We have almost 6,000 copies of the 27 New Testament books alone, some of which date back to within a few decades of the original writing. And when we are talking about 2,000-year-old manuscripts written on uh, paper and animal skins, that is almost absolutely unheard of. There's a whole science devoted to cataloging the thousands of biblical manuscripts, and that's called textual criticism. Text critics analyze the many New Testament copies. They note any discrepancies. They weigh variants based on certain criteria to determine what was the original wording that all of these copies are based on. In almost all situations, it's very easy to tell if there are discrepancies. In the very few places where there's a question about what the original wording was, no major Christian doctrine is affected. And your Bibles will include a footnote saying it could be this or it could be that. All right. So now to John 7, 53 to 8, 11. I do believe that this section was originally included in John. Um, as the footnote mentions, while the manuscript evidence is lacking, Text critics call that uh, uh, external evidence. The internal evidence, or how it fits with the overall flow of the book of John, is great. This account is the pivot point between the beginning of John, where Jesus is presenting himself as the Messiah, and the latter half of John, where the leaders are rejecting him. Furthermore, the words and the actions of Jesus that we see in these verses fit perfectly with how he is portrayed in all the other passages of Scripture. Many scholars believe that this section is at very least an oral tradition dating back to a real historical event, even if it wasn't originally recorded in John. So, now that I have maybe persuaded you that this account is God's word, or at least a very reliable historical account of something Jesus did, let's sink into it. The passage was read at the beginning of the sermon by Matt. What we see uh, is that Jesus is um, the Pharisees are trying to trap Jesus with a justice issue. All right? There is a woman who's been caught in the very act of adultery. And in the Judaic law, it says that she should be put to death for this crime. But according to the Roman law, Jews did not have the authority to do this themselves. So now Jesus is in an unwinnable situation. If he honors the Roman law over God's law, well... Now his claim to be the Messiah, to be God's person, is forfeit. But if he honors God's law over the Roman law, he's now put himself in hot water with the Romans. The Pharisees have their grounds to have him arrested. There must have been pickles back then, because Jesus was in one. But rather than playing their binary games, Jesus comes up with a third option. Want to put her to death? Let the one who is without sin cast the first stone. And that's Jesus' cleverness at its finest, isn't it? 
No one is sinless, and so the gathered crowd files out. <clears throat> Both Jesus and the woman have dodged a bullet or an arrow. <sighs> All right, when I hear people talk about this pericope, pericope there's your fancy word of the day. Uh, pericope is a passage of scripture or an episode from the biblical text. When I hear this pericope, that's generally the flavor I hear. And if that's what's going on, then Jesus' love, his mercy, his compassion are very clearly on display for everyone to see. But if that is all that's going on, well then I'm left with a very major theological issue. Because Jesus then totally ignores the truth of God's word and the justice that God's law required. You may know that Christians today are not under the law. Um, that's Romans 6.14. As such, we're not uh, required to keep all of the legal and all of the ceremonial requirements that are found in Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, <clears throat> and all of the bacon lovers that Covenant Presbyterian Church said. Amen. There we go. Yeah. However, the reason that we are not under the law today is because of our relationship with Jesus. Jesus was a Jewish man living under the Old Covenant, and he was under the law. He had to live a perfect life in perfect obedience to God's law so that he could be our perfect sacrifice for sin. Hebrews 9, 11 to 14. So, does Jesus ruin his perfect record here, thereby throwing God's plan and our salvation into chaos? Well, no, I don't believe so. And I think an intimate familiarity with the Old Testament law will reveal that there is a lot more going on in this interchange than we see on the surface. So let's take it back up to the top. Pharisees bring a woman who has been caught in the act of adultery before Jesus, and they cite the death penalty required in the law. And they're correct in this. Leviticus 20 Verse 10 says that if a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. Deuteronomy 22.22 22 says essentially the same thing, adding the need to purge the evil from Israel. So are the Pharisees trying to obey this law? If so, who's missing from the scene? The man, right? Don't have first-hand experience, but I am to understand that when you commit adultery, it usually takes two people. All right. Um, maybe you have heard that Pharisees kept the letter of the law, but Jesus kept the spirit of the law. Has anybody heard that? That's false. All right. The Pharisees did not keep the spirit of the law or the letter of the law. It was Jesus who kept both perfectly, as we'll see. Verse 6 keys us in that the Pharisees were not so much interested in seeking justice as in entrapping Jesus. Outside of the Bible telling us that, it's very clear from, uh, from their actions. They brought an adulterous woman to be stoned without her partner. So they were not being champions of justice and truth. They were being witnesses with malicious intent. Right? And the law actually has something to say about malicious witnesses. Deuteronomy 19, 16 to 19, state that if a malicious witness arises and they accuse a person of wrongdoing, it will be looked into, 
And if the witness is found to indeed be malicious, then the judges are to exact on that person the punishment that was intended for another. Our courts today might have a little less shenanigans if we adopted a policy like that. Um, Jeff Moju was telling me that they had that on the books in Europe. Um, so it would appear that the, if the Pharisees continued in the course of action that they are running, maliciously trying to entrap Jesus rather than trying to see actual justice done, the lawful thing for them to do, according to God's word, would be to stone them. So Jesus' response in verse 7, Let him who is without sin cast the first stone. It is calling out the hypocrisy of the crowd, but it's also putting the ball back in their court. Because anyone who persists in this sham of a trial is going to be liable to capital punishment. The Pharisees are still going to seek to trap Jesus later, but they know at least in this situation, they're beat. And so everyone leaves, the oldest who get it first, down to the youngest. See, mercy and justice perfectly balanced. So that's a really nice moment. But the crowd of malicious witnesses gone, doesn't Jesus now, the Messiah, the one who's supposed to keep the law, doesn't he still have a responsibility to bring justice to this situation? Back to the law. Deuteronomy 19:15 states that a single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. It's only on the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses that a charge shall be established. At the end of the scene, there's no one else. It's just Jesus and the adulterous woman who as the Bible notes, was caught in the very act of adultery and brought out before everyone. All right, she's probably afraid, she's probably humiliated, and probably now a little bit confused about what happens next. Well, according to the letter of God's law, Jesus is supposed to let her walk. But he loves her too much to send her back to the life that she was living. I imagine after this very close call, the woman had with the business end of a pile of stones, she was probably in a very receptive place to listen to whatever this man had to say to her. He was her savior in every sense of the word. And he finds a really beautiful way to close the encounter. Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She replies, no, Lord. Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. He doesn't just deliver her from her condemnation. He points her to walk on a better path. Mercy and truth. Love and justice. This story isn't the poster child for live and let live. It is a deep case study in how to maintain both a high view of truth and justice while maintaining a profound love and mercy. And it's a challenge for us today. As human beings created in God's image, we were made to reflect his character in every sphere of influence where we find ourselves. It's Genesis 1, 27. As followers of Christ, we are his ambassadors, sharing justice and love with a world in need. That's 2 Corinthians 5, 20. But what does it look like to reflect Jesus 
with love and truth in a post-Christian society. To advocate for God's perfect justice in a culture where humanity is the one that defines good and evil. First, and I think this goes without saying, we need to know God's truth if we are to share it. Jesus was able to de-escalate that situation because he was intimately familiar with Scripture. The uh, Winter Olympics concluded last month, and I'm not the sort of person who tries to watch all of the events, but I do really enjoy curling. Um, I think it's the, the furious sweeping that they do as the thing's going down. I just, it's never-ending amusement to me. Um, but if you watched any of the uh, Winter Olympics, you would quickly realize that stuff doesn't just happen. They don't just wake up one day, go on the Olympic fields and um, ski or ice skate or whatever it is. That um, takes hours and hours of practice on the lead-up to that. And so it is with the Christian walk. Followers of Jesus do not just effortlessly radiate Christ's likeness. We don't spout scripture verses off like the Taylor Swift lyrics. All right, it takes daily time spent in prayer, spent in devotional reading. It takes a community of people coming together to, to, to worship, uh, and corporate worship to encourage one another. It takes Bible studies, small groups that offer accountability and offer fellowship. Uh, you can blank that, Liam. Second, when we interact with people, we do well to talk less and to listen more. In the wisdom book of Proverbs, chapter 10, verse 19, we read, Where words are many, transgression is not lacking, but whoever restrains his lips is prudent. Jesus' words are pretty prudently sparse in this pericope, in this episode. Less truly is more. Jesus was listening, and then he was allowing silence to do its work. And when I recommend listening to you, I'm not talking about the, I'm going to listen carefully so that when you're done talking, I can dissect your argument and just dismantle you. I'm not talking about that kind of listening. I mean truly trying to understand where others are coming from, what their story is, and how that informs what they're saying. We have no hope of sharing Jesus' truth with those we interact with if we don't first have a clear picture of Jesus' love in us, if they don't first um, have a picture of Jesus' love in us. But finally, sharing God's love and his standard of justice does require our words, our words that have been preceded by a godly character that's been cultivated by daily time with Jesus, our words that are preceded by actively listening, that are seasoned by gentleness and respect but after that, our words are still needed. Jesus turned away a bloodthirsty mob with one convicting observation. And afterwards, he changed this woman's life forever with a simple, gentle admonition. As Romans 10:14 says it, how are they to believe in whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? Beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news. The good news that Jesus loves us and died for us and rose again for us because we can't do it on our own. I wonder as I'm talking this morning if there is someone that comes to your mind 
Uh, maybe it's a friend or a family member or a coworker who you spend a lot of time with. Maybe they don't know that you're a follower of Jesus, or maybe they do, but you try to avoid bringing it up as much as possible because you want to avoid that, that potentially awkward moment. I want to encourage you, consider bringing it up this week. If we really have the gospel, the good news, then it's good, and it's something that's beautiful to share with others. Jesus is our example. He's our perfect example of how to share God's love and truth perfectly in balance, how to know God well, how to listen well, and how to speak at the right moment. But we are, and this may come as a surprise to you, we are not Jesus. I'm going to speak for myself so that this doesn't feel like an attack at you, but if what I'm saying, if it resonates with you, then say it along in your own spirit. I am not all perfect, I am not all knowing, and I am not all loving. I come to Christ as a broken person. And after receiving his salvation, I continue to wrestle with the presence of sin and temptation in my own life. I have blind spots that lend themselves to hypocrisy in my speech. I have past hurts that make me lash out in certain situations. I fall short of God's love and truth and I fall short a lot. In fact, on my office desk at home, I have a two-page, single-spaced, small-font letter um, from a friend and coworker I knew in high school. He was an atheist, telling me how tremendously I blew it. I spoke too quickly. I listened too little about a very sensitive matter, and it led to a lost friendship. It led to me pushing him further away from God than before we met. Now, to be clear, I do not hold on to this letter so that I can stew in the guilt of how I've messed up, because that's not the way of Christ. But I keep this letter as a memento to myself, and I read it from time to time to remind myself of the danger of a faith that is devoid of love and compassion. So when we fall short, and we will, and we cause more harm than we intend, the Christian response is to own our mistake, to swallow the urge to rationalize or to qualify what we did. And then we confess our sin, and we repent to God. And with God, we have assurance of pardon. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's Romans 8. And after that, if possible, we humble ourselves and we apologize to the person that we have wronged. Now with God, we are assured pardon. But with people, it's not a guarantee. In the case of my high school friend, he has never accepted my apology and continues um, to hold my words against me. And it's his choice to do that. Uh, but it does sadden me when I see how that bitterness that he holds on to harms him. I've heard it said that when you refuse to forgive somebody, it's like drinking poison and expecting the other person to be hurt. And I think there's some wisdom to that. Finally, we need to prayerfully pray for a better way. If our words and our actions are harming others, we may be in the right, and we may be speaking truth, but we have ceased to walk in love. Romans 14, 15. 
On the other hand, if we selectively ignore the clear teaching in Scripture that is distasteful to us, distasteful to our culture, well then we're going to quickly lose sight of God's truth. And if that happens, we have no hope of truly loving people. We cannot default on God's truth and justice. We can't. But neither can we neglect reflecting his radical and love and mercy that the world so desperately needs. We need to look for a middle way. Christ is our Savior. He perfectly balances God's truth and justice with his love and his mercy in the most intense of circumstances. And he calls us to do likewise. What that is going to look like is going to vary drastically based on person to person, circumstance to circumstance. Do you have somebody that you need to listen to this week? Listen carefully. Do you have someone you need to confront? Confront gently and respectfully. Do you have somebody that you need to apologize to? Apologize humbly. And see how it transforms your relationships, their relationships, and the world around you. Let's pray. Dearest Lord Jesus, we praise you for how good you are. We admire you for how you can hold perfect love and perfect justice in tension. And God, we pray for the wisdom for how to do that in our own lives and in our own circumstances. Pray that we find a way to hold a high view of your truth and your justice while showing your love and your mercy and your compassion. And God, when in our endeavor to do that, we fall short, we thank you so much that we don't have condemnation in Christ Jesus. And we pray that we find a better way moving forward. In your precious name we pray. Amen.